0: Greetings, and welcome to Beetle Stuffology, where two old friends sit about and talk BS, Beetle stuff, on a track-by-track basis, pretty much for the sake of it. My name is J.G. Macquarie, and I'm here with my co-host, Andrew Deacon. Say hi, Andrew. Hello. How are you? Uh, I, yes, I'm doing all right. Thank you. How are you? Just all right. Just all right. Yeah, struggling through dealing with the, the, the ins and outs and the ups and downs of, of, uh, of life in general. What
1: about yourself? I'm I'm Okay. I'm okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, I'd go as far to say, if you've listened to the previous episode, I'm on the mend. Because if you managed to get through the whole of that episode, you'll realise that it perhaps wasn't our most cheerful and uplifting of recordings. But then, uh, dear listener, it's probably fair to say that both of us were in, um, you know, what's the expression our parents probably would have used? Wars. Um, you know, slightly odd expression. But yeah, when recording that JG was incapacitated with a slashed hand and a fractured elbow, or something like that. That's it. Um, and and I had pulmonary embolism from which I'm on the road to recovery. Um, so yeah, that was that was difficult recording. And perhaps if it had been a slightly better song, we might have been able to work through it. But I think I think people will ad- acknowledge the fact that um that almost gave our lives. To the um, to our <laughs> part, <laughs> it probably wasn't for for the the, the greatest of, of songs, let alone podcasts. But um, you know, the the weather is is fantastic today. We're on day two, so far it's going pretty well for England, um, and for our our majority American uh, listenership. I'm not going to translate that last sentence. Um, suffice to say that that actually, do you know what? The world's not a too bad a place at the moment. You know, the world's a pretty horrible place, but my individual world is looking a lot better than it was a couple of weeks ago.
0: Well, that's not too bad then. As long as we can both claim that we're travelling in the right direction, then we are doing all right. So, well, this week we have a twofer we are going to be discussing uh, the album a hard day's night as a complete piece rather than as a series of individual songs and we are also going to be discussing the movie uh, but we're going to start with the album because I'm going to tenuously claim that's a link
1: well in fact let's let's not even start with the album because we've we've given personal news but of course what we really should do as you know a Beatles podcast one of the 54 54- million is, is delve into some of the latest Beatles news. And the thing that never ceases to amaze me is that there's always a latest piece of Beatles news. <laughs> now, some of this is, has, has come out because um, a certain Mr. McCartney is promoting his photographs from uh, 1964, previously unseen photographs. And in an interview with the BBC earlier this week, he disclosed the existence, he have actually disclosed this before, but never mind, uh, the existence of a track um, which seems to have been gripping Beatles' Twitter with um, excitement and or torpor, depending um, on your, your point of view. Um, but it, it seems, um, looking at a clip from around the time of um, Free as a Bird and the other one, oh, Real Love, that they actually were working on this this other track. It's now and then, I think. Um, but that George went off it so that they they then put the whole inside. But it looks like now with the magic of um the the technology that was used on get back, they've been able to clean up John Lennon's vocal considerably by separating it out from from everything else. And and as a result, presumably and star have been working on um instrumentation to go with it so um we shall see what i don't yet know is whether or not a certain mr uh lynn who's now been inducted into the spotify songwriting is also going to be involved um which would certainly cloud uh, my judgment of it but um yeah interesting news i thought what did you think I think it's interesting news too, (laughs) of course
0: I do, it's a potential new Beatles song, sort of, kind of, I don't know, I think it's interesting that they're going back to it and trying to complete, you know, the third song that they were working on around the time of Anthology, there seems to have been a lot of Um, obfuscation as to why George wasn't that keen on the song it's not really clear I don't think whether he just thought it was a bad song or whether he just thought the quality of the recording wasn't good enough to justify it in terms I mean it's not like the quality of the vocal in real love was you know astoundingly high fidelity either but you know it, it seems to be an open question why after an afternoon's work on it he just went Nah, don't think so. Um, and also a lot of speculation uh, along the lines of, well, he's dead now; he doesn't get a vote. Um, so <laughs> it's interesting. Um, there's a lot of hysteria around, like the idea of the fact that it's um AI which is being used in order to kind of put this stuff together. Um, I, and I
1: deliberately, I deliberately avoided using that as as a term because it's not really AI in the sense that. Uh, understand it at the moment is it
0: no it's not and um you know like so much like generative content which is created by ai is you know it's things like oh like freddie mercury at the 2023 pride event or whatever you know it's not that it's 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 basically using artificial intelligence to be a step up from sort of Pro Tools or Logic. You know, it's, it's using it as a production technique, not to actually generate like original content like this, like there's been a bunch of stuff of like, you know, what if the Beatles had recorded a song by the monkeys or by the Rolling Stones or stuff like that. And that that's a very different order of magnitude of, um, of AI kind of implementation. This is just basically using it as a production technique. So that's fine. Um, I really don't have any any big issue with the fact that they're using AI for, for that side of things. What will be interesting to see is whether George Harrison is actually going to be on this or not. Yeah. I mean, obviously, he was not on um, Lennon's original demo, which I think dates from 1978. Um, and obviously, McCartney and Starr can be on it. So the question is, is George going to be on it? I don't know if he ever recorded anything when they were trying to work on it back at the anthology sessions it could be that he did and then that can now be integrated as well but i, I really don't know and i haven't seen anything in the reports so i've read to kind of cover that
1: yeah i mean i i, I think it's it's one of those it's an interesting thing to it's a, a curio um but i do find it hard to get too invested and i yes I, um buying well watching and um and then buying the soundtrack to the 1988 Lennon documentary the Yoko Ono commissioned um, Imagine and Real Love was on the soundtrack Um, and so actually then um, you know it was a little bit surprising seven or eight years later when I wasn't really that invested in the Beatles at that point to to hear the um, Free as a Bird and then this be aware of um, had been released as as Beatles singles, um, you know, it's fine. It's a song that that might involve the Beatles, but it doesn't make it a Beatles song. Um, and even if, certainly, you know, history would sort of dictate that bands that get back together again after a long period of time, that it's very rare that the work is better than the original context they were in, with the original passion and drive that they had. So, I think. Um, it's nice to have something they've worked on um, but without the context of the band and all of that entails it's a curiosity and I'm much more interested in hearing the Stowe School live recordings actually I'm much more interested in hearing the um, you know bootlegs of some of those uh, those concerts um, and things that we've, we've not really heard before than I am in, in um, listening to this you know it's great that there's the technology it's interesting, could visit earlier work um, and potentially improve, develop flawed pieces, but I don't know. it's not a real thing. Um, so, um, you know, enjoy it, people. Um, I suspect there'll be some who will claim it's great, it's amazing, and there'll be some who will see it as a, as a disappointment. And there'll probably be a whole bunch of people in, in between who will go, okay. Move
0: on. Yep, and I think that's pretty much the category I'm gonna fall into. It'll be a curate's egg, but that's that's fine. Also, I find it hard to qualify anything that was recorded in 1978 as a Beatles song. It's not. (laughs) If it had been something that was unreleased from the White Album sessions or from the Get Back sessions that then they had subsequently gone back and worked on, I would have no problem saying, yeah, that's a Beatles song, but it's not. It's a John Lennon demo that a bunch of other people have recorded some stuff over. Okay, they may be the same people that were in the band, but that's not quite the same thing either. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to hear. But, you know, as much as anything else, I think it will be a a proving shot for technology. Um, Yeah, that's that's about where I stand on it. And with that, I think we can probably toddle our way along to something which definitely is Beatles content. Oh, those smooth links just keep on coming. Um, and that would be their very first um, movie and their very first technically a soundtrack. Um, so, A Hard Day's Night. Um, ah, let's get cracking on it. Um, so, we've done all the songs uh, individually and I already disagree with some of my ratings going back and listening to the actual album as a complete piece of work. We'll get to that. Uh, but what are your thoughts on it as an album?
1: Well, I, th- I think one of the incredible things is it's that they've um, released in about 15, 16 months. Um, and of course, it's an album that doesn't have covers. And I think you put those two things together and you get something quite amazing, especially bearing in mind that Into the Seven and Beyond, it became increasingly rare that, that bands would put out an album every three years sometimes, let alone every every two years. So the amount of work that they're producing in a short period of time is amazing. And bearing in mind, as we've discussed in the various episodes, how little time there is between the writing, the rehearsing, and the, the recording of these songs. So so what they're doing is particularly remarkable. Remind- I think it's um all the more remarkable if you if you bear in mind that still the album charts are not a massive thing. You know, the singles chart is still where everybody else is is focused. Um and if you kind of look around at some of the in 1964 that we might as being big acts in in the 60s, like Stone State Part 5, Manfred Man, The Kinks and the Animals, well they all had. Albums in the top 10 in 19. But of those, they've caught five, and the Kinks had the most self-penned songs. If they've caught five, it was about three-quarters, the Kinks it was about a third. So there is something really remarkable in terms of what the Beatles are doing. And, you know, all the more so seeing how much they have pushed everything else on. You you sort of have a look at some of the album covers. For, for these other ones and they're quite generic some of the album titles themselves are quite generic you've got a session with the stay with the hollies the five faces of manfred man and then the other three are just eponymous titles whereas here you've got something that you know admittedly is is a song title but it is it's vastly different from any of these other generic ones so you know Whatever you feel about the individual collections of songs and how they're put together, what they're doing is culturally significant, um, even if perhaps people didn't realise just how culturally was at the time. It's an amazing breakthrough. I mean, some some big recording acts aren't even having albums released in 1964. So, you know, Billy J. Kramer had a number one hit in 1964, but no UK album. Jerry and the 10 hits but no 1964 albums Silla black had two number one singles but doesn't have an album until 1965 so it's still something that is perhaps not the exception but perhaps not as common the record companies aren't sure that they're actually going to make some money out of it
0: i think one of the most amazing things about a hard day's night particularly compared to with the beatles and please please me is just how modern it feels it really feels like a complete album. Now, some of that is going to be the writing, some of it will be the sense that, you know, there's going to be that consistency because it's just Lennon McCartney songs on it. But even so, it feels like such a big leap forward. Like with the Beatles, definitely feels like a move on from Please Please Me. That's not to that's not to denigrate Please Please Me particularly. I think it's probably the best possible album they could have done in 1963 at that point. But the gap between with the Beatles and a hard day's night is so much wider than between please please me and and um, with the Beatles and um, and it has a real sense of it being what we would understand as a modern album i.e there is some kind of unification to it it doesn't need to be you know obviously it's not a concept album or anything like that but there's a unity of tone there's a unity of style there's a unity of in in terms of the way that it's it's put together the way it's constructed and that makes it feel incredibly modern even now it has that real sense of a bunch of people who are working to create something which is like I don't want to say artistic vision, that's far too pretentious, but they are working to produce something which is a whole piece of work. And that's even more remarkable given that half of it's a soundtrack and half of it are songs which are there to, uh, you know, just flesh out the album. But maybe that is also part of it. You know, it's that idea that of, uh, you know, an album having two sides. The first side is a soundtrack and it's incredibly tight and well put together even with the slightly dire, I'm I'm happy just to dance with you, um, you know, which is probably the weak link in side one. But even so, like in context, it works incredibly well. Side two works incredibly well as its own piece as well, slightly distinct from the songs, which actually end up in the movie. But nevertheless, they still have their own whole because they're being written for a specific purpose, which is side two. It's the B side of the album. And all those songs are there to kind of fill that out. And it just all works i think it's an amazing piece and honestly i haven't given that much time to hard days night as an album um truth be told but going back and revisiting it in this way i'm i'm startled by how contemporary and how modern it seems
1: i mean you almost need to divide some of the songs that were written specifically for um you know a possible soundtrack album and some of those that written and recorded in in june 64 in order to fill the album up, which is pretty much what Side B is. Although yeah. one of the notable exceptions to that is you can't do that, which was originally recorded in the film but got dropped. So you know there there is a sense uh, um, that, and I think there was a um, there, there was another one as well. I can't remember what it was, but there, um, there was the the song that was originally going to be the um, sequence. Forgotten it for now, but that's okay. Well, that may well come back to me at some point. But most of them were written later than the others, so they have a slightly different feel. I think there's there's there is a bit more of a downbeat feel to, um, as opposed to some of the more uplifting lyrics. And and whether that's just a case of oh, you know, we've got to write a bunch of stuff um, for this film isn't it exciting. We're going to write a film. And then, well, we've got the film. We now need to get up fourteen tracks because that's what the record company uh, decrees that we have to have. So therefore, let's just write a few more. But either way, it's noticeable that they're pretty much writing things to order. They're not a band who are sitting around going, "Okay, well, we've written a bunch of songs in the studio." It's a case of, "Right, well, we have to write some stuff. Let's write it because we've got to because we're in the studio." You know, so it's it's. An interesting way of working and um, bearing all of that in mind, it's of demonstrating that they are capable of working under pressure. Um, and, and actually, I've heard an, an assertion recently that because of the way in which the, uh, the music industry um, now operates, in the sense that, um, yeah, okay, fair enough, you need to get out there and you need to, do this, but you're not making an awful lot of money off publishing. It almost seems like we've gone back to the situation where bands are releasing. New material on a much more regular basis. Um, perhaps an unintended consequence of the whole Spotify, um, but it is interesting that, that bands are having to, um, you know, to, to recoup more money more regularly rather than. And I think the expression I had was just, you know, sitting on their backsides waiting for the royalties to to drop in.
0: Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think when it comes to hard days and night, I mean, there's the the speed at which this flew up the charts was remarkable, but it didn't go in at number one. It went in, I think, at number three, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and the, the, like the charts are kind of interesting um, when it comes to the the week that uh, Hard Day's Night went to number one. It's it's you know it's our brief visit to the charts, but you know they knocked the Rolling Stones off off the number one spot. That's fine. Number three is Cliff Richard. Um, all right, fair enough. You know he's he's going to be a name that we just inescapably can't get away from uh throughout the course of this podcast when we're looking at the charts and then the rest of it is it's kind of a i don't know it's it's well number four is the bachelors okay uh, number five is uh, number five is the soundtrack West Side Story. Well, okay, fair enough. We know that they're still selling by the shed load. Um, number six is Elvis. Number seven is the Shadows. Uh, number eight is the Beatles. Nine is Roy Orbison, uh, and ten is the Searchers. It's it's another one of those. I think maybe with the exception of the Stones, it's incredibly sort of small C conservative and safe. There mm. isn't there isn't a lot to really challenge the listener there and i think when it comes to that hard day's night as an album um i mean you know it it's it, it there's so much dynamism i mean th- that elvis album is kissing cousins yeah good luck finding anyone who cares about that you know uh right okay rolling stones uh rolling stones that's fair enough um and the rest of it is it, it, it it's i don't want to say it's dross but i mean also it pretty much is um and and you know it's yeah. one of the reasons that this album kind of again feels very contemporary is because even given the context within which it was released it's just head and shoulders above anything else like that first rolling stones album is fine it's okay it's kind of primitive it's not the Best thing they're ever gonna do, I think it's fair to say, but it's all right. Um at least it's challenging, at least it's a little bit interesting. Everything else there is just it's just there. And and A Hard Day's Night is so fresh by comparison. So it's it, it's very easy to understand just why this album had kind of the impact it
1: did. I think some of those bands though were um you know, on, on the horns of a, a, a dilemma. I mean, first and foremost. I mean, what you're actually saying reinforces my point about the fact that um, you know there wasn't a huge amount of variety from what we would regard as the outstanding bands of, of the generation. Absolutely. But if if so, if you have a look at, um, there's there's a really useful Wikipedia page where it lists all of the top ten albums in 1964, and for a start, a lot of the list is in 1963. But the list itself isn't that huge huge so it's not as though the huge churn before five six different albums there every week as perhaps there may be sometimes you've got a lot of what well, not many albums being released and as a result a lot of very average albums sticking around presumably not selling a massive amount but getting in there because there isn't a huge amount of, of competition so but what you also get is is people On some of those bands, on those albums, effectively, you know, wearing their influences on their sleeves. So, you know, the the Animals, for example, um, you know, they're they're doing the Rolling Stones thing. of, um, We're a blues band. Let's do loads of really good blues covers, which is fine. There there was an an audience for that. But then that's not necessarily that dissimilar to how the music industry had been up to that point where you would have artists. Um, who were performing someone else's song. And, and the skill of the artist and the manager was in selecting the appropriate song that had been written by, by somebody else, which, again, is where the Beatles break the... Break? There you go. There's one for the bingo. Um, and, and I think it's just, just being able to look down the listing and go, Lennon McCartney, all the way down, that, that makes it so significant. Um and it thing it doesn't really matter that, that George doesn't have a song in it because you know his writing won't really get particularly strong for for a while, yeah. Um and it, it doesn't even really matter that that you know it's a Lennon over that there are so many more songs that are, are written um by John. But it suggests to me that um that when Paul had an idea, it was a really, really good one. That Lenin had more ideas, not necessarily ones, but he was able to to have the force of personality to be able to 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 come up with these ideas in a very short space of time and see them through. Perhaps in a way that that McCartney developed later on um, in their career. But it it's another one of those things that is um, a step forward. And and I know I think um, um, Bob Stanley sort of. Talks about the fact that you know you you should be slightly suspicious of those people who say that they can see the link. Me and things like rain, but he does agree that there there are sort of steps in the right direction with things like. He um, he lists. I think it's that I say can't do that. Thinking about why it is that that I prefer songs like um, you can't do that. Um, mm-hmm. And um, oh my God, my memory's just gone. What's track two, side side one? I really, really like it.
0: track two, side one is "I Should Have Known Better."
1: That song just can't remember its name, and I think it's because they they feel like modern songs. Whereas, you know, one of the reasons why I'm slightly hard on on some of the songs from time to time is that you can hear that that Lennon in particular, crying, phrasing. Trying shifts in chords and and jumps in melody that you just don't hear anymore. You don't hear them anymore because they don't work. Um, whereas people will be much more likely to take the melodic structure of something like "You Can't Do That" um, and and build something around that. Those are the songs that that last. However, even experimentations are way more interesting than other bands are
0: doing well absolutely and you know i'll be back to a perfect example of that we may have been um not in our best place when we recorded our episode on on that particular song but yeah you you don't get songs which are structured like that that's just not a thing um and yeah. and whilst it's not the strongest song on the album at least it's interesting at least it's managing to do something which is unconventional and, and which you can find you know something to say about it it it's not just like straightforward pop and you know yeah. i i i think it is worth you know sort of lingering on on just how much lenin's influence hangs over this because it is just Lennon's album and we'll come back to this once we start talking about the movie and the way that he's kind of positioned in the film but you know it, it's an astonishing thing just how strong his personality is and i think Going back and listening to this as an album rather than as a series of individual tracks. This is also the first album that I really feel... We'll talk about this a lot when we get to my favourite Beatles album, but... Um, spoilers! Um, but we have an album here which I think really is more than the sum of its part. The whole is more than the sum of its part. Listening to the individual songs. There's a few, like, looking back at the rankings we were given, there's a few which, I like, listening to them as songs, I thought, yeah, okay, that's fair. But then going back and listening to them as part of the album, and I thought, wow, I really underestimated... How good that song is. Like um uh When I Get Home is a perfect example. I really, really love that song. I gave it I think like five and a half. It's like, what the hell was I thinking? <laughs> like, but but it's it's hearing it in between things we said today, and you can't do that. And it and and you know, again, you know, context is always is everything, but you know, it it it's its charms and its its skills come across much more clearly. And with like things we said today, we have this very Sort of muted kind of vocal from mccartney it's a thoughtful song it's a little bit more sort of considered and then you've got kind of lennon kind of screeching in with this kind of when i get home and you know it's 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 just great his voice sounds amazing on i love lennon's vocal on 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 that song so much more than i did when we were just like doing it as a straight song and then it cuts out to the 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 rather more sinister you can't do that and just just having everything placed that way makes it come alive. There, there it is it is more than the sum of its parts, this album. And and that that both applies to the B sides, the soundtrack side, and the album as a whole. It's it's a really remarkable thing. And and so much of that is lenin it's Lenin's presence on this album which is is providing that that sort of coherent force that, that that pulls it all together
1: so I wonder then how much um a shift in the way that the um the tracks were um, were organized perhaps um, makes a difference because obviously we've moved away from the you know the George martin um, um structuring of of the album onto something that is is influenced by um by elsewhere, we've also moved away from the you know the big closing track, you know the the pacing um that that martin was was insistent on elsewhere that you know you start with a bang, you end with a bang, you know you can sort of hide some some less good tracks just before the end, but as long as you go out with something that's that's really kind of powerful and uplifting um difference. Because you you don't have that that sort of force towards the end of, of the sides uh, on this you know you you've got something that is is in places a little bit more more subtle but obviously in the fact that the the record company I suppose Dick Lester as well um, wanted the um, side one to be all the songs from the film. I
0: think it does make a difference. I mean, sequencing is such a, an art, and I know we've talked about it in, in, in previous episodes, but it is such an art. And even even if you take that first side, so you've got Hard Day's Night, Should Have Known Better, If I Fell, Happy Just to Dance With You, and I love Lover, Tell Me Why, Can't Buy Me Love. Fine. Um, you still need to be able to organise those songs into some sort of... Uh, I'm gonna use the word coherent again. You feel free to add that to your bingo card. Some kind of coherent pattern. Um, and being able to segue with those, the, like the one to opener, a hard day's night and I should have known better. That's that's a really good, strong punch you've got there. Then you pull it back with a little bit more sort of thought, a little bit more consideration with uh, if I fell. Uh, happy just to dance with you. Okay, it's pretty lightweight, but it's kind of fine. It's a little bit fun. It, it's starting to pick things up again uh then you get kind of the sentimentality you get the ballad with um and I love her before you return to kind of the much more kind of exciting dynamic of of tell me why so there is like there is a proper through line even if they are just all the songs from the movie i don't maybe the word just is not appropriate there but even if they are the songs from the movie the soundtrack half of the album they've still been put together in a way that gives a sort of emotional through line. It's still taking the listener on a journey. It's not, four or five songs which are all rockers and then a couple of ballads stuck at the end there's real consideration being given to how those songs are laid out and how you will be listening to them as you go through them I mean again I I mentioned earlier like the weakest is I'm happy just to dance with you but in between like the two ballads If I Fell and And I Love Her that's fine it provides a little bit of light relief it provides a little bit of space so that you don't get too kind of drawn into uh, the, the more romanticized side if you want to be less kind the more schmaltzy side, um and so the song is still fulfilling some kind of purpose even if it's clearly the weakest one you know from from that batch so um yeah i it's I, I still think even even with the the division of of um soundtrack songs and non-soundtrack songs, the sequencing of it really works well and real consideration has been given to it. And like talking about the getting away from the George Martin thing of, you know, end with a bang, instead we end with a slightly more um, questioning, slightly more melancholic, I'll be back that kind of works as well because getting away from a formula which has been established in the previous two albums gives this album the feeling that it's going somewhere like it's trying something different it's not just trying to replicate a formula and again that's very much to a hard days nights advantage it's another reason why this feels like it's a proper beatles album and in the gap between the last two feels wider it's taking a chance it's not just going to follow what we did before just for the sake of it working
1: so okay, I've got a bit of a hypothetical question for you. Um lovely. There's no there's no starky lead vocal on this album. Um looking down the track listing, which do you think would have suited his his voice the best?
0: Wow, now that is a good hypothetical, isn't it? Um Ah well no. I'll cry instead. I reckon I because reckon of that's because the of one country,
1: I'd go for. Country twang. Yeah,
0: we, and, yeah. And I can imagine a slightly like, particularly that, you know, I've got a chip on my shoulder that's bigger than my feet, that kind of slightly doleful that, that that, that, that's, that sounds like a sort of Ringoism that he could easily carry off. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I reckon I'll cry instead. I'll cry instead was the one that, that was originally slated to be the, you can't do, um, we love sequence, wasn't it? Yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I think that makes sense. Cause it's, um, it, it's one that goes down. Ringo's better at hitting some of the lower notes than he is at hitting some of the higher notes. So, um, yeah, I can see that. But not having Ringo singing on on the album does also give it a slightly different feel that that kind of works. You know, sometimes Ringo's vocals can be a little bit... Here's the intermission, folks. (laughs) Um, You can, if you wish to, completely tune out of this song. Um, which obviously is not necessarily a criticism because as, as anyone who's been with us for more than about three episodes will know we both like boys and you know interpret that remark exactly how you wish or it's it's one of those those um i think hugely underrated beatles songs and and i i now Um, said that that I prefer that to um, um, Twist and Shout for example Uh, it's not to say that Twist and Shout is a bad song I just happen to think that Boys would have been a better album closer, but there you go I know, I'm in such a Um, yeah but there you go So um, it it makes it different and obviously we'll make up for that on on the next album um, where Ringo will, will get his shots at greatness and in fact, even on the next he will have his uh, his special moment.
0: He sure will. Um, yeah, it is interesting that he doesn't have um, like a vocal on this, especially given that one of the most praised sequences in the movie is is one featuring him. I I get I, 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 like you, you know. I I I enjoy a Ringo song when it's in the right place, and you know, I I, I love boys, <laughs> uh, but there is a sense that. I think this album is probably better for not having one. I think if it was All Cry Instead, just for the sake of argument, I think that would be fine. I don't think it would derail the album or anything. Um, But there is a sense that it's not something that this album greatly requires, and that's that's fine. That's, it's, not a, it's not in any way an insult towards, uh, towards Ringo. And, you know, we've got... You know, we're only a couple of albums away from Act Naturally, so, you know, there's that. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. It, 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 and yeah, Ringo does really great work on yeah. this album as a musician. Like, um, any time at all. And that snap of the snare before we get started is just such a powerful moment. Like, he's he, he, he may not have a vocal, but his presence is all over this album um so even if he's not even if he's not up at the microphone he's he's certainly not um simply discarded he's he's a really significant part of of why all this works and I yeah i mean i, I always i always praise ringo of course i do um but here particularly i think this is also the first album where we have a sense that he is as good at what he does as what maybe uh, he, he's as good a drummer as George Harrison is a guitarist or is Paul McCartney is a songwriter or whatever. He he really comes into his own and his contributions across this are just phenomenal.
1: But well, we've started to hit on a few more links between the album and and, and not least um then talking about the way in which you can hear a lot more of those individual personalities coming across mm. um album and and some of them are in in almost unexpected places. George, the best example for me is on And I Love Her. Um, I think his guitar playing on that is is, is absolutely fantastic and it elevates what's sort of an incredibly mature and interesting song, bearing in mind how early they are in their career, into something that, that's almost, you know, exquisite, for example. You know, and, and the fact that Paul is able to, to write a song like that well is is particularly from you can see his character and his personality um, coming out there um, along with things we said today as well um, you know and obviously john's slightly you know caustic um acerbic personality is, is coming across a, a lot more in in some of his lyrics even sort of forgetting the the extremes of um, you can't do that for example um you know so it's it's good to to think those individual distinct personalities coming across on the album because of course they are by design present in the film itself so um at this point it might be worth just asking the question do you have you want to to mention um about the the album is it worth diving into the fact that you know, in America, they released a soundtrack version that included some of the incidental music. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not really that interested in some of the pieces, to be perfectly honest, and and I think the incidental music doesn't really um, help a huge amount. Um, I kind of feel sorry that they didn't get the um, the album as it, it was it was intended to be. Anything else you want to you want to bring up?
0: No, not particularly. I mean, I think it is worth noting in passing about the 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 uh, instrumental stuff being stuck out in America, but we've done that now, so <laughs> I'm quite I'm quite happy with that. I, I it's it's not. It, it I don't even want to say like it's not interesting. It it is interesting, but without having, I I mean I it's not something I have any kind of personal history with or anything that that I can I can really speak to, um you know. That's fine, uh, but I think it's something that would be more interesting to discuss with somebody who actually like, had those albums or has spent time listening to them in that context rather than simply as as the album. So, yeah, it's interesting that they're there, but that's kind of all it is.
1: Okay. So, um, at this point, you've been going about 40 uh, minutes. Oh, 40 minutes, blimey. Um, so, uh, maybe it's time... Um, to delve into the album, and at this point, I'm just going to take a deep breath here. Okay, so it may well be that we we've split. We could have split this into two episodes. You you won't know until you hear it, folks. In fact, you may not even hear this part. At my deep breath. Um, we may have taken the decision to um, to wrap that one up and and put something else out. That's fine. It is worth now diving into. Um, the cultural phenomenon that is a hard day's night. And, and I think it's another one of those those elements that is like a conjunction of several different things, almost of things that have gone before it. Um, and, and at this point, it's worth me bringing in the fact that um, um, a couple of weeks ago, um, I'd, I'd sort of been out of hospital for, for a couple of days, on the Saturday afternoon, um, I think we were probably meant to record, but I'd, I'd put it off because I still wasn't feeling at all well, um, and I watched an absolutely hilariously bad film on, I think, BBC Two, and it was the gorgeously awful 1961 Elvis film, A Blue Hawaii. Oh, um, <laughs> you poor thing, as if you weren't yeah. feeling bad enough. I know, I know, It's it's, but it's that reminder, isn't it, that... that These films, um, pop stars, you know, didn't start with the Beatles. Um, You know, I'm I'm sure most people out there listening to us will will, will sort of know that already. I mean, in fairness, they didn't really start with Elvis either. I mean, you could go back to, you know, things uh, starring, for example. You know, I'm sure as long as there have been talking pictures, there have been um, films in which popular stars of the day have also sung Things that then were released as, say, sheet um, music or phone records, or you know whatever you know format was was available. But in you know, 1961, we've got um, you know Elvis um, in in a really odd. It is a really. I mean, I, I could spend ages talking about this film, such is its its oddness. And um, maybe that's a bonus podcast. Um, his mother's played by Angela Lansbury, for goodness' <laughs> sake. And what's really interesting, but this is 1961, 62, she was playing the mother of Lawrence Harvey um, in um, the, the amazing uh, Manchurian Candidate that, uh, that also stars Frank Sinatra. So interestingly, within within a year, I don't think she had with Sinatra. But to be in films with Elvis and, and Sinatra that close together, of course, Sinatra doesn't seem in, um, um, in that. But um, there was... Ah, okay. So it's an odd film in particular. One of the things that, that I think is in, in huge contrast to A Hard Day's Night is that the producers seem to have wanted to put Elvis into a film where very basically lots of women find him very attractive and want to be with him plot whereas yes that does happen in in a hard day's night and obviously you have girls who are screaming their heads off and you have you know um, female characters who are very interested in them but it's a major plot device but there's, there's one scene in particular where there's, there's a party and um, Elvis and the band sing rock uh, rocker hula which <laughs> she moves it's you know a great song and um, you know um, And after they've played, she asks her husband, he said, "Well, what was that?" And he answers, "Something we're going to have to get used to: the sound of youth." And it's like, "Oh dear God, you know, the producers thought in 1961 that, that rocker was the sound of youth. And just think how close we are then to, you know, modern pop music uh, really taking over. And, and actually, what you do get with A Hard Day's Night is the actual sound of, as to what producers think is the sound of youth. It's, it's a massive difference. It's a really, really important difference. And, you know, this is this is Jukebox Elvis. Um, and and actually, some of the songs, um, but, you know, I think Can't Help Falling in Love is on, on the soundtrack to this, for example. And, you know, Rockahoola's a lot of fun but it's not essential and and i think that's an important difference as well and of course uh, are the the other modern uh, variants of this around this time as well um you know let's let's all sort of give a shout out to uh, mr cliff richard and he's very much films.
0: very much lingering on the tip of my tongue at
1: the moment yeah but you know i think there there are other things to to bear in mind so so that's clearly and influence but you know the British film industry at this point and although this is funded by United Artists in America it is in style but apart from having an American director and American funding it is quintessentially a British film and I think that's particularly interesting because if you bear in mind that a lot of British cinema at this point um, were Let's see what was I, I thinking? It says horror films. You've got carry-ons. You've got war films. Um, you know, it's it's sort of a, a little bit of a of a weird collection. But then you've also had over the previous few years, sometimes referred to as new wave or or kitchen sink dramas as well. That have you know they mentioned earlier, the likes of Lawrence Harvey that you know that he's made his name with before then going off to America to to be. Um, a big star. Quite interesting that actually what you get is that you get elements of all of this. I mean, partly it's it's kind of like a, a revolt against some of those those war films. Um, you know, it's it's kind of an extension of the the reality of some of the because despite the fact it is basically absurd in places, there is an element that it's showing the lives of people that you wouldn't normally have seen. Um, on the screen, and there's some humour in here that is a million miles away from from carry-ons, for example. So, you know, it it kind of pulls together an awful lot of of other elements of of British cinema, um, which I think is is particularly interesting. And and not least, and don't worry, I'll take a breath in a moment, um, what we've also got is... Um, I think I called him both Richard and Dick Lester at uh, various points, but at various points in his career, he was either called Dick or Richard. Um, you know, at this point, he is Dick Lester directing this, who is this American who, who found um, the, the American TV and film industry a bit too straight-laced and boring and, and made the leap over to, to the UK, where quite quickly he seemed to get involved in in some fairly um bits of, of humour that do then mutate into the kind of humor um that we get in this and and there are two examples that it's worth mentioning you know albeit one venerated, and and the other is 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 off overlooked and and the the venerated one is the the thing that he, he produced with principally peter sellers but obviously there were also other significant people involved which is the running jumping and standing still film which is the minutes of um oh, how could you put it
0: dicking about um, the countryside for no readily apparent yeah, reason
1: basically basically and I kind of feel the same way about that as I do now feel about the Goon show in the you know it, it was funny once but stripped of its context just looks like it's it's completely out of step with with everything else and i'm sure lots of lots of people like it but i mean you can see links to um spike milligan's humor in in some of those series of cube that i remember being repeated 20 or so years ago as there was another attempt to um you know um place spike milligan back in in the pantheon um you know and his influence is, is 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 huge on British comedy and deservedly so. but I think if you look at some of those individual pieces, you sort of think mm, I'm not really quite sure why that one you know needs to, to have the the importance that it does and the other one is one that I know I've mentioned before, but you know I think it's spending really, I mean, a little bit of time talking about it, and that's it's Trans Dad, which Dick Lester directed in in nineteen sixty two so before I get stuck into that, do you have anything more to add on the um, the risible running, jumping, standing still film? Um,
0: only that it's remarkable um, how bad it is. Uh, it's not funny. Uh, there's like one or two amusing sight gags. There's the 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 the, uh, the guy that places like the the record on a tree stump and then he runs round it to get the music out of it. That's yeah. a mildly amusing sight gag. Um, but things like the um, like the tent gags in it. Uh, like they'll be turning up in Magical Mystery Tour like five years later. You know, oh, sorry, I'm sorry, oh, um, eight influence. years later. Yes, um, but it but better. Um, and it's it's interesting to see in the way that you can start to uh, start to see the emergence of that kind of absurdist sense of humor. But yeah, th- that doesn't necessarily make it worth all that much in and of its itself. If you can, like you were talking about music films. You know, there's a year between um, Cliff Richard's Summer Holiday and The Beatles' A Hard Day's Night. Uh, summer Holiday 63, Hard Day's Night is 64. Uh, the gulf could not be wider. And again, I'm not really <laughs> saying that to be insulting towards Cliff. Um, but rather, mm-hmm. although, you know, I'm perfectly fine doing that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but rather just to show how there was this kind of divergence. So even... running jumping standing still is 59 um and a lot of that kind of absurdist humor is kind of present if not necessarily always to the foreground in a hard day's night so you can see it in things like the gag with john lennon in the bath and he's not under the bubbles after all ha 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 or people running the, the running past the train sequence give us our ball back mister um the, you know there are hints of it there it suggests that and of course we know of course that one of the things that that, that the beatles shared was a love of the goon show and spike mulligan and, and kind of absurdist um senses of humor um compare and contrast with Summer Holiday, which is none more straight. Uh, It's just a simple, straightforward jukebox musical uh, where people have terribly nice middle-class adventures and a double-decker bus for no readily apparent reason, and there's a couple of hit singles in there. And, 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 you know that's fine. I don't want to suggest that there's anything wrong with that, but you do start to see this dichotomy emerge. And on one side, you have that extremely traditional kind of thing, which is represented by movies like summer holiday. You mentioned carry on, which absolutely falls into that, into that tradition as well, even though it can be a bit saucy a a bit cheeky or whatever, but it's very safe within that kind of context. Um, and then this other side which starts to merge you have uh that you have the goons you have uh, spike milligan and you have this more kind of absurdist thing which will eventually lead on to monty python and, and douglas adams beyond that and so on and so forth that's great but but this is the point where that split occurs the early 60s is exactly the moment that that occurs and uh unfortunately more conventional uh approach will win uh, commercially if not artistically you know a lot of British this is this is kind of the point where you can sort of point to British cinema also starting to lose its way a little bit because you can only produce so many war films you can only produce so many carry-on films you can only produce so many kitchen sink dramas and and a lot of those things don't quite evolve into anything whereas the absurdist strand of stuff does evolve it evolves into python it evolves into these other things and and it mutates it doesn't necessarily have to be something which stays in the cinema and it's that development it's the fact that these are art forms which can develop that marks them as significant whereas these other ones they're very staid they're very small c conservative and they just don't lead to anything
1: there is um, a change in the way that, that war films were being produced so there's sort of a little less gritty they're a little less about individual stories and they're, they're you know there's a different way that the germans are being represented now than some of those post-war war films as well there's sort of a little bit of distance to, so telling grander narratives um you know so it's, it's quite interesting but what you've also got 64 and this is important because i think john hicks has only recently released the book connections between Bond and the Beatles, because um, *Please Please Me* was released on the same day that um, *Doctor No* was released. But yeah. in 1964, you've got *Goldfinger* as well. So you've got different things coming into that British film industry, and you know, industry just get lost um, in many ways in in you know the 60s and and the 70s. Um, you know, but you know there's still some sort of thriving elements of it, and Actually, what you do get is, is you know, a lot of easy choices being made about converting TV programs into into films, for example, about things that seem to be big box office, and therefore, also therefore, what you get a think successful band. Let's put them in a film. So Jerry and the Pacemakers end up having a film. Dave Clark Five have a film. Not seen it, but I hear it's quite interesting. Um, and that's also where. I think it's worth. Oh, by the way, do you want to know what links? My uh, Goldfinger and Douglas Adams. Of course, I do. Richard Vernon. Oh Richard yeah. Richard Vernon's in, in Goldfinger, Hard Days Night, and Slightly Bartfast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, yeah, in, in yeah. the TV series, as well. brilliant. So, um, so there you go. So there's there's a. Um, have you seen it, Trad Dad?
0: I've seen excerpts from it. I haven't watched That's the entire funny. thing all the way through. I must be honest.
1: Because I think. I, I really like it because, I mean, it's rubbish. It is, <laughs> it's, it yeah, is rubbish. Yeah. Like it because it's inventive, and it's inventive in two ways. So this, this was, um, you know, 1962, Richard Lester, done some TV work, work moving into, into films. But there are some real comic flashes that are from running, jumping, standing still film into things that, that followed. It's the first. It may well be that there are other places where it existed, but it's the first time I've ever seen that that, that gag that you sometimes see in in cartoons behind the actors. In this case, it's um, a singer whose name I've forgotten and um, Helen Shapiro, um, and they're they're sort of oh yeah we need to get to the BBC. Oh how can we get there quite quickly? And what you then see is is the film the role of film appearing behind them. And then in conjunction with the narrator, Derek Giler, they then effectively change the reel and behind them, instead of it being the cafe that they were in, they now actually shows the... Um, and it's a really clever, inventive piece of cinema. Um, and maybe that was the first time it was done or maybe they were nicking up somebody else. But, you know, it's, it's it really, really works in, in the scene in the coffee. It's a very high-tech coffee machine that someone is, is um, the barista is, is using in order to make coffee and presses all the buttons and steam comes out and eventually he just goes over to a little cabinet, opens the cabinet, pulls out a teapot and pours the coffee from the teapot and hands it over to the customer. It's really, really good. You have the pompous mayor who, um, when leaving the, um, the council office to go out to his car, I think it's a Daimler that um, they stand and watch as the driver runs a flag up the flagpole on the car, um, gets in the car, drives two seconds down the road, gets out of the car, and then as it gets out, they have to wait for the driver to then take the flagpole, uh, the flag back down the flagpole. There's, there's lots of stuff like that, that that's really fun and really um, and frankly quite funny. There's a lot of stuff that isn't, but flashes like that, you can see, right, there is development. There is that progress there. And it's also incredibly inventive. And and if you watch, there's a lot of, basically, you know, it's a 70 or 80 minute film of which I would say about 60 minutes is musical performance. There's so little plot. It is the epitome of the, let's put on the show right here, that'll win them over kind of film. But you've got Gene Vincent being framed by the instruments. You know, obviously instruments in the foreground and you're seeing, it, seeing him through Instruments. You've got um, you know, the Brook Brothers on an incredibly white set, very sort of crystal clear white, and there's them behind. You know, and the range of angle of shots then are very reminiscent of the performance that the Beatles spot on uh, in *A Hard Day's Night*. You've also then got the Temperance Seven sitting in, in a line of what looks like office chairs with black, white background and a white piano. And, and it's so interesting that, that you can see the link between those performances and the way in which A Hard Day's Night was shot as well. I mean, it's, it's objectively awful film. It, it, it trades on the, the, um, the generational differences, which again is something that crops up in A Hard Day's Night. You know, you've got the olds and the kids, but you've also got the Pete Murrays of the world, you know, the, the old DJs. But like they should be with the old, but they're trying to be with the kids. But it's, it, it's a lot of it is basically about jazz and the coffee shop, and, and it feels incredibly dated, but yet there's still enough in there for it to feel like it has an influence over a holiday's day's night. So, you know, it is available to watch on YouTube, you can watch the whole thing. Um, you know, if you like, you can you can skip through an awful lot of the performances just to get to where the gags occur. In particular, when they get to something called the Click Club. Um, you know, the, the Del Shannon is shot mostly in close-up, which is really odd. So you can see his, his sweat and his very odd-shaped head, um, which perhaps is is rather unfortunate. But it's 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 interesting. And and I think it's it's a forgotten piece. The fact that it's only really on YouTube sort of suggests that. So, this is the last time I'm going to talk about it's trying to dad, folks. Um, but it's it's worth it. And then a couple of other points that are worth noticing. Obviously, Derek Guiler as the narrator, he crops up in Hard Day's Night. You've got lots of, um, of very familiar um, comedy, British comedy names from, say, the 60s and the 70s, and to an extent, into perhaps the early the 80s, you know, you've got um, Hugh Lloyd that people will recognise from North lot of Hancock episodes, for example, Arthur Mullard, Frank Thornton is, is in there, brief director, people will know from um, Are You Being Served, for example, and and unfortunately in my notes I've written Derek Dimmo, which is a very unfortunate, Derek Nimmo, um, who plays a waiter with lots of interesting sight zeitge- games, uh, I just got and you'll get that as well in a night. You, you have to look but there's an awful lot of, of names in there who have a little influence before but a lot of influence after in British and my last thing my last thing on this track is that it was written by um, I will get the pronunciation incorrect I'm sure Milton Sabotsky does that name ring any bells for you? Um. Uh, yes, I vaguely recognise it. Do you know from where you vaguely recognise it? Um, uh, No.
0: Annoyingly.
1: <laughs> okay. So I did trail before the episode. Um. With uh, my good friend JG, that there would be a, a Doctor Who connection. Um. Milton Sabotsky is the man. Who made Amicus Productions, who mostly um, made um yeah, cheapo horror films, but also um he is responsible. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. There you go. Um, it, it's the company that produced the two Peter Cushing Doctor Who films, which he.
0: Well, adapted the original. Word. <laughs> but yeah, of course. Okay, <laughs> okay. I, couldn't, I couldn't let that one slip past. But yeah, he, 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 he adapted the, uh, the Terry Nation scripts for the, the Daleks and Dalek is a vision of Earth, yeah.
1: So, about the, um, about the film, and, and the one thing that we haven't really done yet is talk about the f- film. We should probably do that then, right? Well, especially as we're, we're now an hour in.
0: Okay, well, let's talk about the film then. Um, quite good, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> I think it's it's kind of interesting in the way that it's, it's sort of parsed out because there's a real sense in which this film exists for the musical numbers and the plot elements are kind of the washing line that hangs between the poles of, of the music numbers. And yet... Also just managed to function so well on their own too it's um it's a curious uh choice, but it works incredibly well and i don't i i I do really really like this film I'm not a hundred percent in love with it in the way that some people are, but there is so much about this which which needs to be commanded and which which is 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 so worthy of praise and it's it's almost kind of hard to know where to begin with it it's 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 oh, yeah it's but it but one but the, i'm going to start with a slight negative which is okay. uh, which is also to comp- uh, going back to uh the running jumping standing still there are a couple of moments in this where you thought this is just no this isn't this doesn 't work you 've gone on too long or it 's not quite landed. Um, the overall feeling of the film has uh, so the overall momentum of the film has such feeling behind it that it almost can uh, almost always overcomes those moments. but there are certain moments in it where you just think, "No, see what you 're trying to do there, but this isn't funny um, and yeah. that 's probably one of the few negative things i 'll have to say
1: no that's fine i mean i I, I understand they the, breakout of the studios mm. but I mean I'm not enamored with the um, let's run around um, the playing fields oh yeah it's rubbish uh, um, um, element and and you know the 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 very very ob- about you know laying down your jacket for a, uh, a woman over the puddle and mm. you know turns out that maybe it's not a puddle kind of thing uh, you know it's a little bit on the labored side um, as well but um, I think it's interesting you're referring um, you know, whether or not it's it's a film in which, you know, basically you string out the songs and then you have bits that go in between. You know, bearing in mind that it's you know, there are seven songs on the soundtrack, two incidental bits of music and I wanna be your man and um um what's what's the big hit they play at the end as well. Anyway, you know, you know, the big one. Um you know, anyway, in in the musical performance, it doesn't matter. We're we're an hour and ten minutes in and no one's actually going to be listening at this stage to go, but they don't actually know what they're talking about. But the one thing that, that I I'd sort of to an extent disagree. I mean, it's not like it's Tramp Dad, where that exists purely to put a whole bunch of of uh, but although most of them were on their way out in terms of popularity, artists on film for people to go and pay to, to watch in, in a different format. You know, there's there's in, in um, Steve Mateo's um, excellent book, The Beatles on Film, Act Naturally, um, he includes um, a review from Andrew Saris in The Village Voice who uh, calls it the Citizen Kane of jukebox musicals. Well, I'm assuming, it doesn't say, I mean, it suggests that it's a contemporary um, um, review. It's interesting that jukebox musical a term that could have been around as far ago, as long ago as 1964. But I don't think of it as, as a jukebox musical in that sense.
0: No, well, we tend, to there, think there of, is... we tend to think of things like, like the Queen musical falls into that category yeah. or Runrig have just done one for, you know, reasons. Uh, but that tends to be the context we think of it contemporary, contemporaneously.
1: Yeah, but I, but I think there is, there is a reason for the film to exist is beyond the songs so oh, yes, the songs definitely. are an important part of it but it's it's a film about being young and successful it's a film about um you know the zeitgeist it's it's a film about you know what it means on a culture that has been staid and boring and oppressive restrictive for such a long period of time it's a film about growing up in that post-war period and then suddenly having something gloriously exciting to grab hold of. And I think that captures, the film captures that incredibly well, not least because actually, as we were sort of alluded to earlier, it works their personality. And rather than creating personalities for them, very sensibly, that the decision was taken in the script to build it around an exaggerated um, aspect of, of their individual personalities. You come across as as individuals, but within a group. They come across as, as young people who they do, but they want to keep elements of their personality going as well. And, and I think, you know, that may be an interesting piece on its own. Obviously take the songs out and it's a 45 minute piece but I think it works within the context of the times. And in particular, in a way that if you did it about an invented band, it wouldn't work because those inventive bands are never quite as strong if the songs don't work. So there's something about this that I think just really, really works. I, I know there's, there's some suggestion that there's an awful lot of improvisation, but what uh, Richard Lester, um, at the BFI, he talks about the fact that the script was there and the funny stuff in the script is, is on the screen. But there were times when they allowed the Beatles to improvise that they were good at. So the press conference, for example, is predominantly improvised because those were the interactions in which we know the Beatles were quite funny. Are you a mod or a rocker? No, I'm a mocker. You know, that's, that allows them to be there but you get a script that's based on on who they are that really sort of gives you a sense of just how important they were to the young people of the time. And also how much that annoyed some of the young people around at the time as well. And I think that's, that's just fabulously effective.
0: Yeah, and I think the positioning of each member of the group as well is is kind of playing up to a stereotype of them that already existed. But which is, like you said, it's it's that writ large. But that that's effective because it doesn't really require them to do much more than sort of be themselves and and lark around. And I, you know, particularly, you know, like John Lennon is very clearly, um, you know, uh, posited as as the leader of the group. You know, and, and, you know, constant comments. Oh, that Lennon, he'll be the death of me. And that Lennon, oh, I bet he's responsible for all this that, and the other. And you know, there's there's a real sense of which Lennon is being positioned front. And center, but even even with that positioning, it never feels like it's being done to the detriment of the other uh, the other three, and that's really significant as well because it it helps to reinforce that well they're kind of all in it together sort of thing. And again, it's it's so easy to fall back and kind of like the lazy cliches of of, of talking about the Beatles, and it's it's terribly difficult that we. Resist. Uh, sorry, it's terribly important that we resist that. It's terribly difficult to uh, to avoid falling into those traps. Um, but by by exaggerating those kind of um, personality traits as well, it also means that it doesn't require too much in terms of acting and I think overall that's probably a good thing um bless him I love George ever so much but he wasn't he wasn't made to be uh he wasn't made to be in front of the camera I think handmade films was a much better place for him to end up in the end Uh, and yeah you know he's still he's still fun to watch he's still entertaining as himself but yeah, that, that idea of that very kind of careful positioning, playing up against um like stereotypes of the band as they already were, and then just kind of putting them into situations where that could work effectively for them. It does work. Yeah, not every single thing is 100% successful, but that's fine. The And here we go, I'm sorry, please feel free to take your bingo card. The joie de vivre of the film is is kind of irrepressible. It, it's just so hard to escape what a, what a pleasure it is. And okay, there's the odd longer, or there's the odd moment, which doesn't, doesn't necessarily strike home. But at the heart of it all, the sheer excitement, we use the word excitement. And I, I think actually that's exactly the correct word. And again, especially if you're comparing it to these, um like other, like movies, uh, which musicians have put together at that point, some of them are, Good. Some of them are bad. Some of them are are mediocre. I'll I'll let you uh, position its trad Dad <laughs> on on that spectrum yourself. But again, if you can, like like again, I, to bring up summer holiday, it's generally regarded as Cliff's best movie. It's nice. It's a nice film. But at no point is it ever exciting. Like those those post army Elvis films. None of them are exciting, and and. That's fine because they're mostly just product. They're being, you know, it's the make a film, make a quick buck, move on to the next musical trend. There's no sense that there's any permanence to this. And that's the other thing. About a hard day's night, which I think marks it out as as so different from those jukebox musicals which had come before. There's a sense of permanence about it, and not just because it has a historical legacy that now stretches from well, we're 2023 when we're recording this, from 1964 to 2023. But there's something far more fundamental about it and fundamental about the way that it's approached and what it's portraying than here's a nice little jaunt or here's uh, some pretty scenery and and some attractive girls there's just there's simply more to it and and some of that is coming from what we talked about before like that absurdist sense of humor that isn't something that you get in any any kind of jukebox musical up to this point it it marks it out as something different it marks it out as something which is going to be a much more significant contributor to kind of popular culture and that development is is part of what makes a hard day's night exciting even even at this historical distance even with all the context that we can throw at it it keeps that feeling of excitement no other jukebox musical up to this point has managed that you could i think possibly even argue that no other one ever will or at least not to this not to the same extent but certainly up to this point it's the first one and it's a real landmark for that
1: so i mean it's interesting that you you mentioned that um you that george's performances were um were very good because that, that actually goes against some of the things that um i think dick lester himself said he thought that um that george was the I suppose, but he thought that George gave really good performances because, actually, I suppose he said he he tried the least, as it were, and and I'm not sure if it's in the the Steve Matteo book or if it's, um, um, you know, from elsewhere, maybe some of these interviews with Dick Lester. There's a suggestion that because McCartney was living with Jane Asher and was effectively around a theatrical types, that he aware of things and was trying just a bit too hard mm. not to be natural but to be actively and so i've seen the implication um, the insinuation that therefore that's why he's his individual scene um, was cut whereas the others all get more substantial individual moments um, in the film and i think it comes across as quite laid back and, and i certainly would agree that he's you know, he's he's no Peter Talk when it comes to acting. <laughs> um, if you want to interpret that how you like, but um, but you know, perfectly fine. I mean, yeah. you know, Ringo comes across pretty well, and maybe that's why people were less worried about him having um, a song on um, on the album because there is a bit more focus on on him than on on you know, his disappearance is much more of a uh, of a, a, a plot point than, than anything else. And that's fine. But I think I think they're they're fine. They're effective enough. I I don't think it's a film that requires them a lot of acting. And you know, whenever I sort of think of Lennon in this film, I think of him in a remarkably similar way to a uh, quite a well known clip of them appearing on the Morgan and Wise show, where he's, you know, trying to keep up in terms of the humour, but he's really, he's just having a good time. And I think that's the thing that does come across. They're all having a good time. And, and that seems to, to be um, particularly effective here. But I think it's, you know, that they um, on the film, but I think it's also worth just remembering that there were all these incredibly creative people who allowed them to be seen at their best and that maybe investment in the cinematography and the staging and the casting and all of those other things is, is such a crucial thing in terms of making sure that what we've got here is something that's a little bit different from the show on right here type film or you know let's all go away on a bus and, and travel around europe kind of thing you know you get something that's that's gritty that is um, despite that grit has stark contrast that allows you to see these people at their best especially when they're doing things like like performing because they form a contrast to say victor spinetti's over the top and exaggeratedly I anxious i love victor
0: spinetti in this movie he's so he,
1: great he is magnificent yeah but it's <laughs> but he's he's it's a bit like you know you've got him you've got richard vernon on the train you've got Wilfrid bramble as the the clean old man um, you know it's it's the contrast contrast of the black and the white in the performances. It's the contrast between the older characters and the younger characters that makes such an enormous difference in the film and really helps them to, to stand out. It's, um, and, you know, it's how quickly it was conceived and put together and filmed and then edited and released. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about October, November 63, when the idea was originally floated. We're talking like a month's worth of with um, some recording before, some recording after, recording of Hard Day's Night actually during in, in April 64. It's a phenomenal piece of work. And, yeah, there are some loose ends. Yeah, there are some slightly dodgy bits. massive amount of plot, but just enough. Um, but it is incredibly inventive, not as product, but as a piece of cinema. And that's why it regularly hits things like, you know, top 100 best British films or something, all those lines. That's why it's still incredibly well regarded to this day.
0: Well, absolutely. And I, I think it's also worth mentioning um, since you've you mentioned Wilfred Bramble, um, you were also talking about the, the, the sort of the, like the slightly more gritty elements of it. There's something really startling about the sequence and the police cell or so the police station where you know he starts singing irish liberation songs and you know (laughs) um, you know watch out for a british bobby because you know they'll they'll kick the shit out of you basically if you're irish like that's incredibly pointed for 1963 or sorry 1964. In what is essentially, you know, a, a you know a, a quickie casher. We know that's not what the reputation of the film will end up being, but that's still how a lot of it was was conceived. And yet, it's got a lot of that kind of a lot of that kind of police station stuff. Like that's it, that goes on a bit too long. But yeah, in the middle of it, you've got this incredibly like pointed thing about you know the Irish Free State and and the way that the British treat Irish uh, these days. And and it's it's such a I don't want to say, like, it's a weird contrast. It's not. It kind of feels very in keeping with the rest of the movie. But it's just... It's just kind of there. It's this kind of sudden injection of social realism into a movie, which has mostly been about Ringo putting his coat over a hole so a woman can fall down it. You know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a very stark contrast. And yet it works. And part of why it works, of course, is Wilford Bramble himself. He's able to suddenly do that switch from being kind of charming to um, kind of being uh, sort of manipulative earlier on in the film. But here we get to see another side of his performance come out and that sudden anger and that sudden it's, it's a great little piece of performance not one that i think gets particularly um hailed or gets much focus but i i really want to point it out because i think he does so well there
1: and and yet the the actual chase to and from the police station and so on and so forth probably you could have played yakety sax over the top of it and, <laughs> absolutely it's that's and, why and it that's it why it's exactly so weird yeah, yeah yeah yeah
0: love a bit yakety No, nothing wrong with that piece of music the, but anyway yeah
1: the, <laughs> the cultural impact is is quite interesting um and again, I know it sort of steers away from from the Beatles, but towards the, the filmmaking. But there's that review of it, um, it's quite interesting. So, you know, and he talks about um, the inventiveness of some of the techniques. He, he says, you know, when a film is strikingly original, its influence shapes so many others that sometimes you can't see in the first one Goddard's Jump Cuts in Breathless, Rudisuk turned up in every TV ad. Truffaut's freeze frame at the end of uh, the 400, no, anyway, uh, 400 blows, I, I forgot the French there, became a cliche. Richard Lester's innovation had become familiar. He didn't invent the techniques used in The Hard Day's Night, but he brought them together in a grammar so per- pervasive, persuasive that he influenced many other films. Today, when we watch TV and see quick cutting, handheld cameras, interviews conducted, moving targets, quickly intercut snatches of dialogue music and music under documentary action and all the other trademarks of the modern style, we are looking at the children of a hard day's night. And that is, I mean, that's, that's quite, um, and it's amazing just how inventive uh, Richard Lester, Dick Lester was at that stage of his career and how much he was able to um, involve some amazing talents um, in his work, and we've mentioned in previous. Is um, it Gilbert Taylor who was also the cinematographer on Doctor Strangelove, and also the first Star Wars film, for example, as well. So there's there's incredible things that are going on there. But it is of course worth remembering um, Richard Lester was also the man in later life would go on and be the director of um, Superman Two and Superman Three. Oh, you know, he was also involved. I think he did direct the first Superman. Superman 2 and Superman 3 are not necessarily the greatest of, of um, But, you know, everyone's got to go somewhere. By the way, uh, just before we started recording, it, I saw on Twitter that it's the third, know, 43rd anniversary of the release of Superman. Um, and I did have a um, just a quick look then at the uh, the Wikipedia page for Superman 2, directed by Richard Lester. Written by Mario Puzo. Does that name ring a bell? Should do, because um, he wrote the best adapted screenplay for The Godfather and Godfather Part 2. And he also wrote Superman 2. So anyone's career can go down the pan. We we all have to pay the bills. Yeah, which almost circle to now and then. The, the upcoming Beatles track, really, doesn't it? <laughs> um, it's a mighty long way down rock and roll from Top of the Pops to the Drawing the dog. There's a, a Billy Bragg reference for you. And, you, know, it's a, you know, it's a long um, A Hard Day's Night, and um, You Can't Do That, and Things We Said Today, and I Love Her, and this, this amazing film. And Ringo Starr's all-star band, which packs out night in america
0: it sure does it sure does well i think that's probably a perfect place for us to start wrapping things up and we can move towards scoring we are not going to give a score for the movie um because we've just decided that but we are going to give a score for the album because that's something that we do so um on you go
1: you missed an opportunity uh, for a really sort of crap pun there. So we're not going to give a score for the movie because George Minds already done it. Hey! <laughs> um, oh, I don't know. I must admit, until you mentioned it, um, I'd forgotten that we we actually were doing scores for albums. So I've got no idea what I've given the last two. Um, would, you, so would you like I, me to
0: check for you? Would you like me to check? Um,
1: yeah, sure, sure. All be, right, hang uh,
0: on. Let me let me just pull up my ultimate spreadsheet of spreadsheetiness. Uh, which is there? Just keep everybody entertained. Just vamp, vamp everyone. At what
1: point do we
0: have to pay the copyright? <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll, I'll edit right any potential charges. Don't worry. Okay.
1: Enough. See. You. Mm. Right, I've got, I've uh, yeah. got,
0: I've got the numbers. Okay, right here we go. So you give uh, right, hang on. So you gave, uh, please, please me uh, five, and you give with the Beatles six.
1: There, we go. Let's 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 continue to show progression. Let's say seven. Seven.
0: Okay. Because That's we nice. know
1: we know there's big. We've there been seven are... and a half, but there's no, no Ringo singing.
0: Well, you see, I am going to give it seven and a half, even without Ringo singing. So that's that's fine. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. I've I've warmed to this album so much more than I expected to um, when I came to it. So I'm I'm quite comfortable giving it seven and a half. And I think I think we're done. Uh, That's fine. Good. This, I think, is probably going to easily qualify as our longest episode. So well done. Well done everyone if you've managed to get to this stage. I'm not sure that we have, but you know, we've done our best and we've, we've covered it. Um, should you have any questions about anything we have talked about or, or such as why, um, you can really get a hold of us. Uh, you can contact us by email. We are beetlesstuffology at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at beetles underscore ology. You can find more of my blog and writing at www.jgmacquarie.scott. And you can find more of Andrew's writing at, www. Stop, bleh, edit. <clears throat> at www.stuffology.co.uk. Uh, also, please check out my other podcast, which is Talking Trek to You, uh, where a noob and an alleged expert, moi, go through the original Star Trek episode by episode. Please like, rate, and review us on whatever podcast you're using, uh, so the more people can find the show. Uh, next episode, we are going to be doing the Long Tall Sally EP. So we're going to do the whole EP as one episode, because three of the four songs are covers. And yes, I know we should have done it before A Hard Day's Night, but we haven't. So... I'm sorry, that's just the level of professionalism you'll have to live with from this podcast. But that's what we're going to be talking next time. So um, thanks for staying with us this long. If you have stayed with us this long, if you didn't, well, fuck you. But anyway, until then, keep listening.